Section 14 of the Ingoldsby Legends, First Series. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Ingoldsby Legends, First Series by Richard Harris Barham. Section 14. Strange as the events detailed in the succeeding narrative may appear, they are, I have not the slightest doubt, true to the letter. Whatever impression they may make upon the reader, that produced by them on the narrator, I can aver, was neither light nor transient. Singular passage in the life of the late Henry Harris, Doctor in Divinity, as related by the Reverend Jasper Ingoldsby, M.A., his friend and executor. In order that the extraordinary circumstance which I am about to relate may meet with the credit it deserves, I think it necessary to premise that my reverend friend, among whose papers I find it recorded, was in his lifetime ever esteemed as a man of good plain understanding, strict veracity, and unimpeached morals, by no means of a nervous temperament, or one likely to attach undue weight to any occurrences out of the common course of events, merely because his reflections might not, at the moment, afford him a ready solution to its difficulties. On the truth of his narrative, as far as he was personally concerned, no one who knew him would hesitate to place the most implicit reliance. His history is briefly this. He had married early in life, and was a widower at the age of thirty-nine, with an only daughter, who had then arrived at puberty, and was just married to a near connection of our own family. The sudden death of her husband, occasioned by a fall from his horse, only three days after her confinement, was abruptly communicated to Mrs. S. by a thoughtless girl who saw her master brought lifeless into the house, and with all that inexplicable anxiety to be the first to tell bad news, so common among the lower orders, rushed at once into the sick-room with her intelligence. The shock was too severe, and though the young widow survived the fatal event several months, yet she gradually sank under the blow and expired, leaving a boy, not a twelve-month old, to the care of his maternal grandfather. My poor friend was sadly shaken by this melancholy catastrophe. Time, however, and a strong religious feeling, succeeded at length in moderating the poignancy of his grief, a consummation much advanced by his infant charge, who now succeeded, as it were, by inheritance, to the place in his affections left vacant by his daughter's decease. Frederick S. grew up to be a fine lad. His person and features were decidedly handsome. Still there was, as I remember, an unpleasant expression in his countenance, and an air of reserve attributed by the few persons who called occasionally at the vicarage to the retired life led by his grandfather, and the little opportunity he had in consequence of mixing in the society of his equals in age and intellect. Brought up entirely at home, his progress in the common branches of education was, without any great display of precocity, rather in advance of the generality of boys of his own standing, partly owing, perhaps, to the turn which even his amusements took from the first. His sole associate was the son of the village apothecary, a boy about two years older than himself, whose father, being really clever in his profession, and a good operative chemist, had constructed for himself a small laboratory, 
in which, as he was fond of children, the two boys spent a great portion of their leisure time, witnessing many of those little experiments so attractive to youth, and in time aspiring to imitate what they admired. In such society it is not surprising that Frederick S. should imbibe a strong taste for the sciences which formed his principal amusement, or that when, in process of time, it became necessary to choose his walk in life, a profession so intimately connected with his favorite pursuit as that of medicine should be eagerly selected. No opposition was offered by my friend, who knowing that the greater part of his own income would expire with his life, and that the remainder would prove an insufficient resource to his grandchild, was only anxious that he should follow such a path as would secure him that moderate and respectable competency which is perhaps more conducive to real happiness than a more elevated or wealthy station. Frederick was, accordingly, at the proper age, matriculated at Oxford, with the view of studying the higher branches of medicine. A few months after his friend John W. had proceeded to Leiden, for the purpose of making himself acquainted with the practice of surgery in the hospitals and lecture-rooms attached to that university. The boyish intimacy of their younger days did not, as is frequently the case, yield to separation. On the contrary, a close correspondence was kept up between them. Dr. Harris was even prevailed upon to allow Frederick to take a trip to Holland to see his friend, and John returned the visit to Frederick at Oxford. Satisfactory as, for some time, were the accounts of the general course of Frederick S.'s studies, by degrees rumours of a less pleasant nature reach the ears of some of his friends. To the vicarage, however, I have reason to believe they never penetrated. The good old doctor was too well beloved in his parish for anyone voluntarily to give him pain, and after all nothing beyond whispers and surmises had reached X. When the worthy vicar was surprised on a sudden by a request from his grandchild, that he might be permitted to take his name off the books of the university, and proceed to finish his education in conjunction with his friend W. at Leiden. Such a proposal, made too at a time when the period for his graduating could not be far distant, both surprised and grieved the doctor. He combated the design with more perseverance than he had ever been known to exert in opposition to any declared wish of his darling boy before, but, as usual, gave way when more strongly pressed, from sheer inability to persist in a refusal which seemed to give so much pain to Frederick, especially when the latter, with more energy than was quite becoming their relative situations, expressed his positive determination of not returning to Oxford, whatever might be the result of his grandfather's decision. My friend, his mind perhaps a little weakened by a short but severe nervous attack, from which he had scarcely recovered, at length yielded a reluctant consent, and Frederick quitted England. It was not till some months had elapsed after his departure, that I had reason to suspect that the eager desire of availing himself of opportunities for study abroad, not afforded him at home, was not the sole or even the principal reason which had drawn Frederick so abruptly from his alma mater. A chance visit to the university, and a conversation with a senior fellow belonging to his late college, 
convinced me of this. Still I found it impossible to extract from the letter the precise nature of his offence. That he had given way to most culpable indulgences I had before heard hinted, and when I recollected how he had been at once launched from a state of what might be well called seclusion into a world where so many enticements were lying in wait to allure with liberty example everything to tempt him from the straight road regret i frankly own was more the predominant feeling in my mind than either surprise or condemnation but here was evidently something more than mere ordinary excess some act of profligacy perhaps of a deeper stain which had induced his superiors who at first had been loud in his praises to desire him to withdraw himself quietly but for ever and such an intimation i found had in fact been conveyed to him from an authority which it was impossible to resist seeing that my informant was determined not to be explicit i did not press for a disclosure which if made would in all probability only have given me pain and that the rather as my old friend the doctor had recently obtained a valuable living from lord m only a few miles distant from the market town in which i resided where he now was amusing himself in putting his grounds into order ornamenting his house and getting everything ready against his grandson's expected visit in the following autumn october came and with it came frederick he rode over more than once to see me sometimes accompanied by the doctor between whom and myself the recent loss of my poor daughter louisa had drawn the cords of sympathy still closer more than two years had flown on in this way in which frederick s had as many times made temporary visits to his native country the time was fast approaching when he was expected to return and finally take up his residence in england when the sudden illness of my wife's father obliged us to take a journey into lancashire my old friend who had himself a curate kindly offering to fix his quarters at my parsonage and superintend the concerns of my parish till my return alas when i saw him next he was on the bed of death my absence was necessarily prolonged much beyond what i had anticipated a letter with a foreign postmark had as i afterwards found been brought over from his own house to my venerable substitute in the interval and barely giving himself time to transfer the charge he had undertaken to a neighbouring clergyman he had hurried off at once to leiden his arrival there was however too late frederick was dead killed in a duel occasioned it was said by no ordinary provocation on his part although the flight of his antagonist had added to the mystery which enveloped its origin the long journey its melancholy termination and the complete overthrow of all my poor friend's earthly hopes were too much for him he appeared too as i was informed by the proprietor of the house in which i had found him when his summons at length had brought me to his bedside to have received some sudden and unaccountable shock which even the death of his grandson was inadequate to explain there was indeed a wildness in his fast glazing eye which mingled strangely with the glance of satisfaction thrown upon me as he pressed my hand 
He endeavoured to raise himself, and would have spoken, but fell back in the effort, and closed his eyes for ever. I buried him there, by the side of the object of his more than parental affection, in a foreign land. It is from the papers that I discovered in his travelling case that I submit the following extracts, without, however, presuming to advance an opinion on the strange circumstances which they detail, or even as to the connection which some may fancy they discover between different parts of them. The first was evidently written at my own house, and bears date August the 15th, 18 blank, about three weeks after my own departure for Preston. It begins thus, Tuesday, August 15th. Poor girl! I forget who it is that says, the real ills of life are light in comparison with fancied evils, and certainly the scene I have just witnessed goes some way towards establishing the truth of the hypothesis. Among the afflictions which flesh is heir to, a diseased imagination is far from being the lightest, even when considered separately, and without taking into the account those bodily pains and sufferings which, so close is the connection between mind and matter, are but too frequently attendant upon any disorder of the fancy. Seldom has my interest been more powerfully excited than by poor Mary Graham. Her age, her appearance, her pale, melancholy features, the very contour of her countenance, all conspire to remind me, but too forcibly, of one who, waking or sleeping, is never long absent from my thoughts. But enough of this. A fine morning had succeeded one of the most tempestuous nights I ever remember, and I was just sitting down to a substantial breakfast, which the care of my friend Inglesby's housekeeper, kind-hearted Mrs. Wilson, had prepared for me, when I was interrupted by a summons to the sickbed of a young parishioner whom I had frequently seen in my walks, and had remarked for the regularity of her attendance at divine worship. Mary Graham is the elder of two daughters, residing with their mother, the widow of an attorney, who dying suddenly in the prime of life, left his family but slenderly provided for. A strict though not parsimonious economy has, however, enabled them to live with an appearance of respectability and comfort, and from the personal attractions which both the girls possess, their mother is evidently not without hopes of seeing one, at least, of them advantageously settled in life. As far as poor Mary is concerned, I fear she is doomed to inevitable disappointment, as I am much mistaken if consumption has not laid its wasting finger upon her, while this last recurrence of what I cannot but believe to be a formidable epileptic attack threatens to shake out, with even added velocity, the little sand that may yet remain within the hourglass of time. Her very delusion, too, is of such a nature as, by adding to bodily illness the agitation of superstitious terror, can scarcely fail to accelerate the catastrophe, which I think I see fast approaching. Before I was introduced into the sick-room, her sister, who had been watching my arrival from the window, took me into their little parlour, and, after the usual civilities, began to prepare me for the visit I was about to pay. 
Her countenance was marked at once with trouble and alarm, and in a low tone of voice, which some internal emotion, rather than the fear of disturbing the invalid in a distant room, had subdued almost to a whisper, informed me that my presence was become necessary, not more as a clergyman than a magistrate, that the disorder with which her sister had, during the night, been so suddenly and unaccountably seized, was one of no common kind, but attended with circumstances which, coupled with the declarations of the sufferer, took it out of all ordinary calculations, and to use her own expression, that malice was at the bottom of it. Naturally supposing that these insinuations were intended to intimate the partaking of some deleterious substance on the part of the invalid, I inquired what reason she had for imagining, in the first place, that anything of a poisonous nature had been administered at all, and secondly, what possible incitement any human being could have for the perpetration of so foul a deed towards so innocent and unoffending an individual. Her answer considerably relieved the apprehensions I had begun to entertain, lest the poor girl should, from some unknown cause, have herself been attempting to rush uncalled into the presence of her creator. At the same time, it surprised me not a little by its apparent want of rationality and common sense. She had no reason to believe, she said, that her sister had taken poison, or that any attempt upon her life had been made, or was perhaps contemplated, but that still malice was at work, the malice of villains or fiends, or of both combined, that no causes purely natural would suffice to account for the state in which her sister had been now twice placed, or for the dreadful sufferings she had undergone while in that state, and that she was determined the whole affair should undergo a thorough investigation. Seeing that the poor girl was now herself laboring under a great degree of excitement, I did not think it necessary to enter at that moment into a discussion upon the absurdity of her opinion, but applied myself to the tranquilizing of her mind by assurances of a proper inquiry, and then drew her attention to the symptoms of the indisposition, and the way in which it had first made its appearance. The violence of the storm last night had, I found, induced the whole family to sit up far beyond their usual hour till wearied out at length, and as their mother observed, tired of burning fire and candle to no purpose, they repaired to their several chambers. The sisters occupied the same room. Elizabeth was already at her humble toilet, and had commenced the arrangement of her hair for the night, when her attention was at once drawn from her employment by a half-smothered shriek and exclamation from her sister who, in her delicate state of health, had found walking up two flights of stairs, perhaps a little more quickly than usual, an exertion, to recover from which she had seated herself in a large armchair. Turning hastily at the sound, she perceived Mary deadly pale, grasping, as it were convulsively, each arm of the chair which supported her, and bending forward in the attitude of listening. Her lips were trembling and bloodless, cold drops of perspiration stood upon her forehead, and in an instant after exclaiming in a piercing tone, Hark! 
They are calling me again. It is... It is the same voice. Oh, no, no. Oh, my God. Save me, Betsy. Hold me. Save me. She fell forward upon the floor. Elizabeth flew to her assistance, raised her, and by her cries brought both her mother, who had not yet gotten to bed, and their only servant girl, to her aid. The latter was dispatched at once for medical help, but from the appearance of the sufferer, it was much to be feared that she would soon be beyond the reach of art. Her agonized parent and sister succeeded in bearing her between them and placing her on a bed. A faint and intermittent pulsation was for a while perceptible, but in a few moments a general shudder shook the whole body. The pulse ceased. The eyes became fixed and glassy. The jaw dropped. A cold clamminess usurped the place of the genial warmth of life. Before Mr. I arrived, everything announced that dissolution had taken place, and that the freed spirit had quitted its mortal tenement. The appearance of the surgeon confirmed their worst apprehensions. A vein was opened, but the blood refused to flow, and Mr. I pronounced that the vital spark was indeed extinguished. The poor mother, whose attachment to her children was perhaps the more powerful, as they were the sole relatives or connections she had in the world, was overwhelmed with a grief amounting almost to frenzy. It was with difficulty that she was removed to her own room by the united strength of her daughter and medical adviser. Nearly an hour had elapsed during the endeavour at calming her transports, they had succeeded, however, to a certain extent, and Mr. I had taken his leave, when Elizabeth, re-entering the bedchamber in which her sister lay, in order to pay the last sad duties to her corpse, was horror-struck at seeing a crimson stream of blood running down the side of the counterpane to the floor. Her exclamation brought the girl again to her side, when it was perceived, to their astonishment, that the sanguine stream proceeded from the arm of the body, which was now manifesting signs of returning life. The half-frantic mother flew to the room, and it was with difficulty that they could prevent her, in her agitation, from so acting as to extinguish forever the hope which had begun to rise in their bosoms. A long-drawn sigh, amounting almost to a groan, followed by several convulsive gaspings, was the prelude to the restoration of the animal functions in poor Mary. A shriek, almost preternaturally loud, considering her state of exhaustion, succeeded. But she did recover, and with the help of restoratives, was well enough towards morning to express a strong desire that I should be sent for, a desire the more readily complied with, inasmuch as the strange expressions and declarations she had made since her restoration to consciousness had filled her sister with the most horrible suspicions. The nature of these suspicions was such as would at any other time, perhaps, have raised a smile upon my lips, but the distress and even agony of the poor girl, as she half hinted and half expressed them, were such as entirely to preclude every sensation at all approaching to mirth. Without endeavouring, therefore, 
to combat ideas evidently too strongly impressed upon her mind at the moment to admit of present refutation i merely used a few encouraging words and requested her to precede me to the sick-chamber the invalid was lying on the outside of the bed partly dressed and wearing a white dimity wrapping-gown the colour of which corresponded but too well with the deadly paleness of her complexion her cheek was wan and sunken giving an extraordinary prominence to her eye which gleamed with a lustrous brilliancy not unfrequently characteristic of the aberration of intellect i took her hand it was chill and clammy the pulse feeble and intermittent and the general debility of her frame was such that i would fain have persuaded her to defer any conversation which in her present state she might not be equal to support her positive assurance that until she had disburdened herself of what she called her dreadful secret she could know no rest either of mind or body at length induced me to comply with her wish opposition to which in her then frame of mind might perhaps be attended with even worse effects than its indulgence i bowed acquiescence and in a low and faltering voice with frequent interruptions occasioned by her weakness she gave me the following singular account of the sensations which she averred had been experienced by her during her trance this sir she began is not the first time that the cruelty of others has for what purpose i am unable to conjecture put me to a degree of torture which i can compare to no suffering either of body or mind which i have ever before experienced on a former occasion i was willing to believe it the mere effect of a hideous dream or what is vulgarly termed the nightmare but this repetition and the circumstances under which i was last summoned at a time too when i had not even composed myself to rest fatally convince me of the reality of what i have seen and suffered this is no time for concealment of any kind it is now more than a twelvemonth since i was in the habit of occasionally encountering in my walks a young man of prepossessing appearance and gentlemanly deportment he was always alone and generally reading but i could not be long in doubt that these rencounters which became every week more frequent were not the effect of accident or that his attention when we did meet was less directed to his book than to my sister and myself he even seemed to wish to address us and i have no doubt would have taken some other opportunity of doing so had not one been afforded him by a strange dog attacking us one sunday morning in our way to church which he beat off and made use of this little service to promote an acquaintance his name he said was francis summers and added that he was on a visit to a relation of the same name resident a few miles from x he gave us to understand that he was himself studying surgery with the view to a medical appointment in one of the colonies you are not to suppose sir that he had entered thus into his concerns at the first interview it was not till our acquaintance had ripened and he had visited our house more than once with my mother's sanction 
that these particulars were elicited. He never disguised from the first that an attachment to myself was his object originally in introducing himself to our notice. As his prospects were comparatively flattering, my mother did not raise any impediment to his attentions, and I own I received them with pleasure. Days and weeks elapsed, and although the distance at which his relation resided prevented the possibility of an uninterrupted intercourse, yet neither was it so great as to preclude his frequent visits. The interval of a day, or at most of two, was all that intervened, and these temporary absences certainly did not decrease the pleasure of the meetings with which they terminated. At length a pensive expression began to exhibit itself upon his countenance, and I could not but remark that at every visit he became more abstracted and reserved. The eye of affection is not slow to detect any symptom of uneasiness in a quarter dear to it. I spoke to him, questioned him on the subject. His answer was evasive, and I said no more. My mother, too, however, had marked the same appearance of melancholy, and pressed him more strongly. He at length admitted that his spirits were depressed, and that their depression was caused by the necessity of an early, though but a temporary separation. His uncle and only friend, he said, had long insisted on his spending some months on the continent, with the view of completing his professional education, and that the time was now fast approaching when it would be necessary for him to commence his journey. A look made the inquiry which my tongue refused to utter. Yes, dearest Mary, was his reply. I have communicated our attachment to him, partially at least, and though I dare not say that the intimation was received as I could have wished, yet I have, perhaps on the whole, no fair reason to be dissatisfied with his reply. The completion of my studies and my settlement in the world must, my uncle told me, be the first consideration. When these material points were achieved, he should not interfere with any arrangement that might be found essential to my happiness. At the same time, he has positively refused to sanction any engagement at present which may, he says, have a tendency to divert my attention from those pursuits on the due prosecution of which my future situation in life must depend. A compromise between love and duty was eventually wrung from me, though reluctantly. I have pledged myself to proceed immediately to my destination abroad, with a full understanding that, on my return, a twelve-month hence, no obstacle shall be thrown in the way of what are, I trust, our mutual wishes. I will not attempt to describe the feelings with which I received this communication, nor will it be necessary to say anything of what passed at the few interviews which took place before Francis quitted X. The evening immediately previous to that of his departure he passed in this house, and before we separated renewed his protestations of an unchangeable affection, requiring a similar assurance from me in return. I did not hesitate to make it. Be satisfied, my dear Francis, said I, that no diminution in the regard I have avowed can ever take place, and though absent in body, 
my heart and soul will still be with you swear this he cried with a suddenness and energy which surprised and rather startled me promise that you will be with me in spirit at least when i am far away i gave him my hand but that was not sufficient one of these dark shining ringlets my dear mary said he as a pledge that you will not forget your vow i suffered him to take the scissors from my work-box and to sever a lock of my hair which he placed in his bosom the next day he was pursuing his journey and the waves were already bearing him from england i had letters from him repeatedly during the first three months of his absence they spoke of his health his prospects and of his love but by degrees the intervals between each arrival became longer and i fancied i perceived some falling off from that warmth of expression which had at first characterized his communications one night i had retired to rest rather later than usual having sat by the bedside comparing his last brief note with some of his earlier letters and was endeavouring to convince myself that my apprehensions of his fickleness were unfounded when an undefinable sensation of restlessness and anxiety seized upon me i cannot compare it to anything i had ever experienced before my pulse fluttered my heart beat with a quickness and violence which alarmed me and a strange tremor shook my whole frame i retired hastily to bed in hopes of getting rid of so unpleasant a sensation but in vain a vague apprehension of i knew not what occupied my mind and vainly did i endeavour to shake it off i can compare my feelings to nothing but those which we sometimes experience when about to undertake a long and unpleasant journey leaving those we love behind us more than once did i raise myself in my bed and listen fancying that i heard myself called and on each of those occasions the fluttering of my heart increased twice i was on the point of calling to my sister who then slept in an adjoining room but she had gone to bed indisposed and an unwillingness to disturb either her or my mother checked me the large clock in the room below at this moment began to strike the hour of twelve i distinctly heard its vibrations but ere its sounds had ceased a burning heat as if a hot iron had been applied to my temple was succeeded by a dizziness a swoon a total loss of consciousness as to where or in what situation i was a pain violent sharp and piercing as though my whole frame were lacerated by some keen-edged weapon roused me from this stupor but where was i everything was strange around me a shadowy dimness rendered every object indistinct and uncertain methought however that i was seated in a large antique high-backed chair several of which were near their tall black carved frames and seats interwoven with a lattice-work of cane the apartment in which i sat was one of moderate dimensions and from its sloping roof seemed to be the upper story of the edifice a fact confirmed by the moon shining without in full effulgence on a huge round tower 
which its light rendered plainly visible through the open casement, and the summit of which appeared but little superior in elevation to the room I occupied. Rather to the right and in the distance, the spire of some cathedral or lofty church was visible, while sundry gable-ends and tops of houses told me I was in the midst of a populous but unknown city. End of section 14